You are about to hear a conversation with a world-renowned posting whose shi'urim have tens of thousands of weekly listeners. You might be wondering, that's very nice, but this is Starting, which is about the challenges and opportunities of being a mentor in the workforce. What's the connection? Well, our guest today, Ragitzler Breidowitz, went to Harvard Law School, started out as an attorney, and continued on to a career as a tenured law professor. We spoke about his secular career, his journey to the rabbinate, and what he thinks is the most underrated aspect of our spiritual lives. Before we begin this week's episode, I want to share a quick announcement. Purim is six weeks away, and honestly, I have never learned Hilchos Purim properly, but that is about to change. I have signed up for the virtual halacha program Purim Limud, which will allow me to learn the sugis inside with a structured, clear framework. VHP developed a digital platform that allows for flexibility and integration into our busy lives. This is for stark learners who are looking for the real deal. The Purim course is free for a limited time, so if you want to join me, click on the link in the show notes. I would also like to thank Virtual Halacha Program for sponsoring this episode. Now, it's time for this week's conversation with Rabbi Yitzchak Reidowitz. My name is Yaakov Wolf, and this is Dark King. Shalom Aleichem Reidowitz. It's a great honor to have you here, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Our goal today is to trace your journey as a Rav, a Talmud Chacham, but also a professional who made a Parnasa. So let's start from the very, very beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up? So uh, I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, which had a very small Orthodox community. It was not a yeshiva town per se, uh, but it was a very, very warm and loving, loving place. And uh, my parents uh, sent me to the local day school. And in those days, there was no Salman Shefter. There was no conservative or reformed day school. So as a result, even the Orthodox Torah and Soros schools had largely non-Shomer Shabbos kids. So most of my class, it was a co-ed school, number one. And most of my classmates were not Shomer Shabbos. But, you know, uh, one of the things you learn in smaller towns is you get along, you respect people. Uh, I think there's some very valuable lessons there. And amazingly enough, although uh, most of the kids in the day school were not Shomer Shabbos at all, many of them, I'm not sure if it's a majority, but many of them went on to yeshivos after, after graduating eighth grade, whether it was near Israel, Baltimore, which I went to, which was very popular for Hartford, or YU, or Philadelphia, or, or Scranton. And this was because there were certain rabbis, there was a Rabbi Batz, if one of in particular, who had such a sweet, non-judgmental way of talking to people that he literally could go into somebody on Shabbos who was watching TV and just talk to them about sending their kid to yeshiva. And he was remarkably successful. And that taught me a very important lesson, that kind of kindness and openness uh, is much more effective in transforming people than simply being critical and judgmental. So I went to Nair Yisrael because there were many, many Hartford boys who had gone to Nair Yisrael, and they would learn with us in the summer. And I really was very excited about that. And we had an annual class trip. So I visited Nair Yisrael in six, sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade. And I really was so much taken. It was like the highlight of my, of my year. So eventually I went to Nair Yisrael. My parents were originally very reluctant because they, they had thought that Nair Yisrael kids didn't go to college, they didn't become professionals, although that's not entirely true. Uh, and uh, they were going to send me to Shiva University, which I imagine would have been okay also, but, but I really wanted, my heart was set at Nair Yisrael, and I had some rabbis who were great, great advocates for me. But uh, I... My, my ability to go was conditional on my pursuing college and, and uh, professional education, which is one of the reasons why I felt I had to do uh, what, what I did. I find that really interesting, the fact that Nair Yisrael was connected to these smaller communities like Hartford, and so you had that presence in your life already beforehand. So you wanted to go to Nair Yisrael. Your parents were a little bit reluctant, but you ended up going. So how did that transition go from Hartford moving on to Nair Yisrael? So I came to Israel for high school. I, I was a 14-year-old boy in 1967 or eight. I'm not sure I have to go back and compute my age. And I remember that I was so homesick. I was so heartbroken. 
had being separated of Connecticut to Baltimore is around a 300 mile journey. And I had never really been away from home before. And I remember crying on the phone to my parents and uh, they said, you know, we think you should stay. Again, it was such a lovely thing they said, but if you want us to come, we will come and pick you up. But, you know, we think it'll be better for you to stay. And that was a remarkable sacrifice. In fact, my father told me later that after they got off the phone, they were crying because they, they, they really wanted me to be with them. Wow. But they understood what was the important thing. I didn't know that until, until uh, later. And I went to Neri Israel, and uh, Neri Israel uh, is, was, and is a college yeshiva in the sense that Bakram are allowed to go to college, meeting uh, at night. There's, there was a bus that took us uh, twice a week for classes and the like. Now it's a little different. Now the yeshiva itself can offer a bachelor's, so you can go to graduate school without ever taking secular courses. In my day, the yeshiva gave you 50% of your credits but you had to get the remainder from Johns Hopkins or Loyola or Towson or something like that. So I was under the old system. And, uh, no, Baruch Hashem, I, I, I learned in Israel. Uh, I also went to college uh, along with, you know, most of my, my fellow students. Um, I got a smicha uh, from Rebrudeman, Zechoyna Lebracha, one of the Gedoli Ador, the founding Rosh Hashiva of Neri Israel. Uh, but then uh, at some point, uh, I finished college. I had smicha. The question would be, what should I do? Before we move on, I just want to ask about your smicha because you now are a rav and you said that you got smicha back in Israel. So what did that entail? Yeah, so, so Ne Israel does not really have an organized smicha program. To this very day, they don't, unlike, let's say, YU. So in Ne Israel, uh, smicha basically meant that you took time off uh, to learn Yeridea, no say Kalim, uh, in Tairuvos, Basar Bechalov, Malicha, or sometimes Shechita, uh, Avelas, uh, and the like. And uh, that could be in addition to your regular Sadarim, or that could be you could replace a Seder with Yoridea. So really, uh, we didn't have Shiorim in Yoridea. And, you know, one could argue that that wasn't the best way of getting Samicha. Uh, but we simply learned uh, the Shulchan Aruch and the Nosei Kalim, and sometimes the Gemara Sugis which is the, you know, the most important way of learning it. And then we got Bechinas. So we did get Bechinas. We got Bechinas from uh, the Rosh Hashiva, Zechwan Lebracha. And the main, Bochein, was also a great man. My Rebbe Muvak, who later became Rosh Hashiva towards the end of his life, Rav Yaakov Moshe Kolevsky. And we got Bechinas. Uh, you know, so as, as they say, um, why you and other, other places uh, have more of an organized program where they have courses in counseling and you know, various other issues rebutting a face. Uh, in my case, and I think every Neri Israel Muslim, uh, that aspect was on the job experience, meaning to say we didn't get it so much in yeshiva. We got it uh, as we took the positions. So we got it. I will say that Neri Israel as a yeshiva and all of the Rebbeim were models of interpersonal sensitivity. So although they didn't give us a course in how to counsel people or, 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 or whatever, but I think we, we did absorb a lot of positive attitudes from the Rebbeim themselves, from the Rosh Hiva himself. So I guess you could say in a very indirect way, that was kind of a smicha training program, but there was no organized courses. I mean, there were no shiurim in Yaridea, uh, there were no shiurim in uh, management of a shul. It was just learning the uh, halachas and then getting tested on them. And you mentioned that at a certain point in your time in Israel, there was an inflection point where you sort of had to decide what the next stage was going to be. So can you tell us about what happened there? It, it was a confluence of a lot of different factors. And number one, I had I gotten smicha and I had uh, gotten my bachelor's uh, from college. And uh, number two, I was thinking about my parental commitment, my commitment to my parents who very much, I mean, listen, a lot of people simply change their mind and say, hey, you know, I'm in yeshiva, I'm going to stay. Uh, number three, I myself had a certain restlessness at that stage of my life where I needed to explore uh, different options. I, I wasn't sure at that point in my life whether full-time learning was the, the direction that I should take or I needed to be involved in some secular uh, pursuit. And that, of course, was really the essence of the dilemma. Um, 
My, many of my Rosh Hashivas felt they wanted me to stay in full-time learning. Uh, they didn't want me to leave the yeshiva. They didn't want me to pursue a secular career. It was a very, very agonizing uh, decision, a very difficult decision. Uh, my Rosh Hashiva insisted that I talk to Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Zecharnel of Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, is, was Rav Rudiman's first cousin. They were very close. And Rav Yaakov, of course, was known as not just a Gadol Batora, but just a very wise person who was exceptional in understanding people and giving Aetis. So Rav Rudiman wanted me to talk to Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, and I remember going up to Muncie. I think I was 22 at the time. That was a pretty long time ago. And I was just amazed. Rav Yaakov, I thought Rav Yaakov would talk to me for 10 minutes or something. He gave me three hours of his time sitting in shirt sleeves uh, at his kitchen table. And he acted as if he had nothing else to do in the world. It was just the most amazing thing. Uh, he spoke with a kindness, with humor, with a constant smile. And the one thing I remember, which is still very exceptional to me, is that I came with a particular question about going to law school. And, you know, he never answered the question. He just wanted to be sure that I understood all of the different factors. And he wanted me to come to the realization of what is the right resolution for me. Uh, and to me, this is a model of how a parent uh, should behave with their children and how a Rebbe should behave with his Talmudim. Not to kind of micromanage, not to you know, demand a certain conformity, but to give the person the kalim, the utensils, to be able to come to their own inner understanding. So Rabbi Yaakov would say, did you think of this? And what about this? And what about this? And what about that? But he never told me to go, and he never told me not to go. And the maskanas hadvarim was, I'm not telling you what to do, but whatever you do, you have to use in your avodah Hashem. You cannot have a dichotomy between a professional life and a spiritual life. You have to bring spirituality into every aspect of your life. And this uh, really was a yesod gadol ma'oz, um, I have to admit that some of my Rebbeim in Nair Yisrael didn't believe my account of that conversation because it may not have been what they uh, would have expected. Yaakov spoke in Yiddish. My Yiddish wasn't great. Maybe I misunderstood, but I, I'm pretty sure I got the gist of, of, of Rav Yaakov's point. And uh, it was remarkable. It really was one of the great, great experiences of my life to see the mythos of the Gadol, to see his kindness, to see his wisdom, and to see the fact that he wasn't going to tell me what to do. He wanted me to kind of be mavarer, to clarify my own question, and his job was to be a facilitator, to bring out those kolchos from within me. That's really a remarkable thing, because we often have a tendency to try to remake people in our image and Rav Yaakov showed me that that is not necessarily the Derech HaTorah. So, um, so once, in a way, he made the question harder because by, tell, by essentially telling me it's up to me, uh, you know, I didn't have the solace of being told what to do. But at that point, I, I did decide that I needed to just explore uh, those other options as well as fulfill what I thought was my obligation to my parents. I don't mean a halakhic obligation. Technically, Talmud Torah would override keep it up again. So I'm not suggesting any psak halakha here. But for me, at least, I did feel a, a moral obligation. And um, I went to law school. I was there for, for three years. That interaction with Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky is remarkable on so many levels. If I understood correctly, three things happened there. Number one is you got a sense of personal responsibility that you can't outsource these decisions. Number two, you got the self-confidence of a Gadol Batora that you have the ability and the competence to make those decisions. And that leads to number three, which is you were set up in a way that wherever you ended up in life, you were always going to feel like you were in a L'Chathchila situation because there's no right and wrong answer. Then whatever you end up deciding is going to be L'Chathchila and you'll never feel like your life is a form of B'Dyeved. Did I understand that correctly? 
I think that is correct. And I, I also want to point out that the, the although I, I don't think Rabiakov used the Lachon, but I have heard that very phrase, uh, that your life has to be L'Chatfila. I heard it from another pivotal, legendary figure of Ner Yisrael, and that was Harav Naftali Neuberger, Zichron Levracha, who was Rav Ruderman's right-hand man in terms of being the executive director of Ner Yisrael, very, very legendary person. And he would constantly tell the Talmudim of Ner Yisrael, your life has to be a L'Chatfila and not a B'Diyavid. And whatever you do in your life, you have to regard this as the optimal vehicle for making a Kiddush Hashem and serving Klal Yisrael. So you're transitioning from Ner Yisrael to Harvard, and you have this mandate from Yaakov Kamenetsky to find ways to incorporate Avodah Hashem and making a Kiddush Hashem. At that point in time, did you have any idea what that might end up looking like? Or was it sort of this journey similar to Avram Avinu, where he was going to a land by a Kaddish Baruch who said, when you get there, you'll realize that you got there without really knowing the destination without a clearly delineated path from point A to point B? You know, at the time, I, I didn't have a clear sense of what would happen because there were a lot of different things that could happen, many of which did happen. Uh, it could be that I'll go to law school and have a law degree, but then I'll, you know, be full-time Rabbanus or full-time Tina. It could be that my Parnassah will be from law and then uh, I will learn and teach Torah on the side as an avocation. And meaning I didn't have a clear musad of, of what my career path uh, would be. I was aware of the different choices and, you know, perhaps uh, maybe through laziness or inertia, I kind of said, well, let's see, let's see what happens. Let's see where this journey takes us. Um, I had, I think, I think I had good kavanos uh, in terms of wanting to do something uh, for the Jewish people or for at least the community. Uh, but I didn't have a specific sense at the time where this would lead. lead. Uh, but, you know, as I say, uh, as, as I progressed even in law school, things became a little more clear to me simply because different opportunities fell into my lap, whether it was learning with people, whether it was, I, I remember um, I was, you know, relatively close to the Boston Rebbe's Ekronel of Racha, Rebbe in Boston. And a few times, even as a law student, I had the honor of substituting for him in a Gemara shear that he gave, you know. I was not a substitute for him, obviously, but whatever he gave, Gamora Sharon Shabbos, so I, I, I did that. So I found myself being nimshach towards teaching, towards uh, being involved in Torah Finuch in various ways. So that at least uh, convinced me or persuaded me that whatever my career would be, whatever my job would be, uh, there would be a very strong component of of teaching Torah. That's that's really what I loved, what I loved to do. And you mentioned how in Boston you had a connection with the Boston Rebbe. Boston is my old hometown, and people have a misconception that Boston is a city of crazy drivers and sports teams. But there has always been a very strong Torah presence in the city. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about your recollections of the Jewish community of Boston back when you spent time there. Well, it's a few things. You know, my first year of law school. I lived in the Young Israel neighborhood. Well, I lived in Brooklyn, Massachusetts. That's the first thing I want to say. I did not live in Cambridge. Uh, so, uh, you know, the main, as you know, the main Orthodox community of the Boston area is concentrated in Brooklyn and Brighton. At least then it was. Uh, so my first year of law school, I lived in the Young Israel community uh, near Green Street. And uh, the Rav at the time was actually a very great man. It was Nifter fairly recently, reviewed the Kellermer. He uh, was a young Rev then. Uh, his, most of his career he spent in uh, North Woodmere, uh, but I knew him as a young Rev. And I remember immediately, I had just come from there, Israel. So maybe I had the arrogance of the yeshiva bucker who thinks that Shul Rabbanim or Amaratzim. And I, I quickly discovered, I quickly discovered what a phenomenal Talmud Tzatham he was, like the first day that, that I met him. So that was a very, very impressive person, but uh, he was also a very kind person. And there's a recent biography, Hanuf Teller uh, wrote about uh, Rev Kellermer, and the stories there are really, really, really amazing. I can't say I knew him well, and I didn't know most of those types of stories, but that's the type of person he was. Uh, for the second and third year of law school, I was uh, uh, near the Bustner Shul, 
And I was zocha to know uh, the Basna Rebbe. I spent many, many Shabbos, me and a hundred other people, I spent many, many Shabbos uh, by the Basna Rebbe. And I knew his son, who's now the Basna Rebbe in Harnof, of Mayor Horowitz. I knew him as a, even as a single person. He had, he had gotten married while I was there. And the one thing I, I'll say about the Basna Rebbe, which is quite amazing, uh, you know, the Basna Rebbe was, of course, a Talmud Chacham, but when the Bosnian Rebbe would talk, it would tend to be relatively simple thoughts. Uh, he did not speak in complicated, uh, way, convoluted ways. And I always wondered that the people who came to his Shabbos table were Harvard, MIT. They were like super intellectuals. Why were they coming to this relatively simple experience? But then I realized very quickly that it was the warmth. It was the caring. Once again, kind of when I talked about in heart, my Hartford experience, it was the sense of, you know, being at home. And, and as I say, I, and, and, and that, that further reinforced an idea that's fundamental to me, that the love and, and caring that a person gets as much more influential in whether they become religious than the formal philosophical arguments for the existence of God or the proof of Torah min Hashemayim. Uh, it is the warmth that brings people to HaKadosh Baruch. And the Basna Rebbe was exceptional in that way, in terms of his care, in terms of his compassion. Um, uh, he organized uh, the, the International Project of Rofe for medical care uh, for people who came all over the world for medical care in Boston. And the Rebbe not only gave them accommodations and lodging and food, but he also arranged their medical care. He arranged appointments with the most eminent physicians. I remember one time I was davening next to a person uh, in the, the Rebbe's uh, base medrash, and somebody told me later that person who was Rav Shmuel Rizovsky. I had never even heard of Rav Shmuel Rizovsky. He was the Rashiva Padovich. He was Mamish Agadol. I, I use his swarim today with tremendous, tremendous enthusiasm. And he was just davening next to me like a balabas. He's unfortunately was going to Boston for cancer treatment. But the Boston Rebbe, like, treated him. You know, dealt with everybody from the Godol Shabikdolim to really the people who were, you know, not necessarily famous, not necessarily well known. And his house was open 24-7, 24-7 Mamish for any type of Tsairah. So from him I saw kindness and warmth and compassion. And I'm digressing a little bit here, but how did the Boston Rebbe end up with all these college kids at his campus? Did he go out to the campus and recruit? How did they find out about this? As far as I know, and I, I, I can't say I know this for sure, I don't think he did any recruiting at all. It was all word of mouth. Uh, the concept was that people were starving for connection. They were starving uh, for some type of Yiddishkeit. They wanted to get out of the sterile, you know, intellectualism of the university campus. And, you know, uh, one guy went and eventually it spreads that this is the place to go. I, I don't think it. It wasn't like Chabad or anything. He wasn't doing recruiting. People just gravitate. And typically, uh, there were more than 100 people uh, at his Shabbos table, I think. I, and one thing I remember that's so interesting, based on Hasidus and Kabbalah, he would never make Kiddush between 6 and 7 because that's the time that the mazel of Mars, Madim, is so late and it's a bad, it's not auspicious. So I remember that if we finish Myrinth a quarter to six, there was a mad, insane rush to get up there and do Kiddush because if it was 701, I'm sorry, if it was 601, we would have to wait a whole hour. Uh, so I, I, remember, I remember that rush to kind of get Kiddush in uh, before Mazel Madim, Madim came. And did you get a chance to meet Rav Salvechik? Brookline, of course, had another phenomenal, phenomenally great man that was Rav Yosef Do Soloveitchik, uh, known as the Rav. And, of course, the Rav uh, was uh, the head Rosh Hashiva, Magid Shir of YU, and the one who gave Smitha. So his working week was in uh, New York, but he came to Boston. He lived in Boston, actually, and he came back to Boston every Shabbos or to Brooklyn every Shabbos. And, um, you know, he was the founder of the Maimonides School, and uh, that's where he davened. It was not my neighborhood. But I would go there occasionally, and I would uh, sometimes go to the Motzei Shabbos. He gave a Motzei Shabbos homish year, and then he gave a, a Sunday morning Gemara year, as well as, you know, keynotes, you know, special events. 
I did not go to the Sunday morning Gemara Shir, but I did go occasionally to the Motzei Shabbos uh, Chumash Shir. And uh, what can I say about the Rav? Uh, the Rav's brilliance, uh, everybody knows, his clarity, uh, his beautiful way of explaining things. But I do want to point out that although I, I can't say I knew him well, I'm not going to make that claim at all. But he too, people look at him as a Kalta Litvak, a cold Lithuanian who was only, you know, a thinker. Uh, he was, he and his Remitzen were very, very warm and kind and friendly people. And they too had guests on Shabbos. Now, now he, they didn't have like the bus and ready. They didn't have a hundred people. But, you know, college students found their way to the Rav's table. And they too uh, benefited from, from not only his brilliance, but also his warmth. So it's important for people to know that there is another side to Rav Soloveitchik besides being the brilliant, uh, the obviously brilliant, brilliant thinker and enormous Talmud Chacham that he was. He was a person who genuinely, genuinely cared uh, for people. Uh, and uh, his shir was phenomenal. His shir was brilliant. And, uh, you know, as they say, uh, there are people who are much, much, I, I mean, I can't, I can't really say I, I was close to him at all. I, I may have spoken four words to him. I may have met him, but I did hear him a number of times. And uh, again, it blew me. It certainly blew me away. Returning back to your story, we talked about how you were able to go to law school in Harvard, also find opportunities to teach Torah on the side. So when you finished and graduated, what was the next step for you? So the next stage was I moved to Chicago. And that made no sense at all because I'm not from Chicago, but I had a very good friend from there, Israel, who lived in Chicago, and he wanted me to visit him. So I told him I can't afford the, uh, the airfare. So he said, why don't you sign up for an interview with a law firm? Because in, in Harvard, I, I went to Harvard to law school, and there you had law firms who came to the law school to interview you. And if they liked you after an initial interview, they would pay for a trip. So they could check you out in the firm. You could check them out. So he said, why don't you just sign up for a uh, interview, a Chicago law firm interview, and then they'll pay for your trip. So I said, hey, that's dishonest. What are you talking about? I'm going to get a free trip to Chicago and I have no intention whatsoever to work in Chicago. So he said, you know, you never know. You may like it in Chicago. So I signed up for some uh, Chicago law school and uh, law firm interviews. And I got my trip to Chicago. I visited my friends. And lo and behold, the Kaddish Baruch didn't want me to be dishonest. So I actually took a job with a law firm in Chicago. I lived in West Rogers Park. I lived in Chicago for four years. I uh, was Zoka to meet my wife in Chicago. So now I understand why I went uh, to, uh, to Chicago. And Chicago, too, was, was and it still is a lovely, lovely, lovely Jewish community. You know, the Midwest is different than the Northeast. Uh, the Midwest is very, very warm. When people are in shopping, uh, in store lines, food store lines, they talk to each other, which you don't see that much uh, on the East on the East Coast. And uh, Baruch Hashem, today, many years later, Chicago has much more Torah ridiculous, a different column and the like that weren't there when I was there. But even then, there was a solid Frim community, a Pasidisha community, a Shivisha community that was uh, tells Yeshiva of Chicago, uh, that, that is still there. And that's where, although I was working as a lawyer in a big law firm, I was working as a lawyer uh, full time, but that's really where I began uh, to do more and more teaching. Um, I did teaching, there was a, a Balchuva yeshiva in Chicago, really more of a part-time yeshiva, there weren't any full-time students. It was called Mikdol Torah, uh, Rabbi Avram Alter, Rabbi Aaron Levitansky, Rabbi Yosef Heisler, uh, they established uh, this this Maisat, and uh, I don't know exactly how they knew about me. See, I, I, don't, I really don't know, like, why was I approached? That's kind of a little bit of a mystery, because I was just a guy who moved to Chicago and doing a law firm, but somehow I, I got involved, and that's where my uh, teaching began uh, in a stronger way. In law school, I was teaching isolated individuals. I was not giving any classes. Uh, in Chicago is where I began to teach classes. I remember uh, now teaching halacha, teaching Tanakh, the Sefer Shmulo, uh, for example, Chomesh uh, Shiorim. So uh, you could say that I got my feet wet uh, in the four years uh, that I spent in, in Chicago. And then what caused you to leave Chicago and what was the next step? 
So what caused me to leave Chicago was this. Uh, even though I was working as a, at a law firm, I really wanted to be a law professor. Number one, I liked teaching, uh, even law. Number two, the hours would be much easier as a law professor, which would give me more time for learning and for teaching, teaching Torah. So um, I applied. Uh, there's a nationwide registry where if you're interested in law teaching, you submit a resume and then different law schools invite you. So for a while, I actually taught uh, at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. I was commuting. Uh, it was a two, 200 miles. So I would take this little commuter airline, Brit Airways, and uh, I was gone for three days a week and then home for the rest of the week. And I remember uh, the commuter airway in Chicago winters, you know, you feel like the plane is going to be blown out of the sky, et cetera, kind of scary. And I taught in Champaign-Urbana for a year and a half, and I liked it a lot, but they gave me an ultimatum at some point. They basically said, you need to be here more, more often than you are, so you have to move down here. Either you move down here or, you know, you got to find another, another job. So my wife and I, I had just gotten married. I had taken the Champaign-Urbana job before I was married. I was engaged. We got married. So number one, um, to be there for part of the week is very difficult for Shona Rishona. But to move to Champaign, in those days, there was no mikvah. There was no a very, very tiny Orthodox presence. There were only two professors who were Shomer Shabbos. So we were agonizing over this decision. Should we move to Champaign-Urbana? We were actually on the verge of doing it. Uh, but at the last minute, we thought it wouldn't be good for our uh, Jewish life, for our firm type. So as a result, I had to leave the University of Illinois, even though I was very happy there. So when I applied uh, for other schools, the one school, there were maybe two or three schools that made me an offer, but the one school that sounded the best was the University of Maryland that was located in Baltimore. And I thought that was providential in some ways because I learned in Nair Yisrael and to be able to go back to Baltimore would be kind of a return to my yeshiva roots. So because of that, um, after four years in Chicago, my wife and I, we didn't have children at the time. We relocated to Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I was not a Rav in Baltimore. I, again, I was a law professor at the University of Maryland. Uh, but in Baltimore, too, I gave a uh, shiurim, and here the teaching got a little more heavy. I gave a dafyomi shir uh, for uh, four years. Uh, and uh, uh, it enabled me at that time to teach a large part of Shas, including Mesephthus of Kutchev, very difficult Mesephthus and the like. Uh, so uh, my teaching expanded in Baltimore. I was still in Chomesh, Halacha. I was working with another Balchuva organization, Eitz Chaim, which is still there, established by a cover of mine, Rav Shlomo Porter. He should be well, who's still running it in Baltimore. Uh, and um, I was there for four years, uh, and I was not yet a Rav. And then we have the next stage of moving to Silver Spring. Before we move on to the Silver Spring years, I want to follow up with a question about your time in Baltimore. So you mentioned that you were working as a law professor and you were ramping up your Torah teaching on the side. Tell us a little bit practically how that worked, how you made time for everything. Well, I, I was a full-time law professor, and of course, that included writing articles. But a law professor's teaching load, maybe I shouldn't say this, is relatively light. It's between um, four to eight hours a week. Eight hours would be an absolute maximum. Now, obviously, uh, you know, eight hours of classroom time requires preparation as well. Uh, some people say, although I think that's obsessive, that you need 10 hours of preparation for every hour of classroom time. That's vada not the case. But you need preparation, particularly when you're a beginning teacher. You know, once you've taught a course for a lot of times, the preparation time goes down dramatically, as it did indeed. But initially, it took a lot of effort. But basically, the classroom hours were relatively light. Uh, the preparation I could handle during the day. But even during the day, I had time in my office to sit and learn uh, and, and the like. And then in the evenings, I, I taught. So as I, thought, as I said, uh, one of the reasons I went into teaching was because it gave me a more flexible schedule. Oh, as well as summers off. Let me point that out as well. That um, unless you're teaching in the summer school, 
you know, a law school spring semester is over in May and it doesn't start again till the end of August. So you have a big, big chunk of time uh, where you don't have a commitment. Now, obviously, if you're doing scholarship, you know, you have to write as well. But one interesting thing about law school is that they consider Jewish law as an academic subject. So, for example, if I would write an article, which things I did, on, you know, the uh, Jewish law's perspective on abortion or Jewish law's perspective on the law of war, that would be acceptable scholarship uh, for law school, um, even though it involves learning Torah. In fact, I got tenure based on a book I wrote about Aguna, right, about the halakhic and legal issues of protecting Agunot, who are women who do not get or cannot get a get from their husband. So in a sense, the academic part of it allowed me, dovetailed with a lot of Torah learning, although not necessarily the Torah I was teaching. So oh. I was able to do a lot of learning as a law professor. And at night, I, I did uh, teaching. I did Tafyomi. I did other shiur, other shiurim uh, as, as well. I want to say one thing. I don't, I don't want to say that I was unique. Baruch Hashem, many, many my shaveirim have followed a similar path in which they're, they're professional, uh, very well-regarded professionals who still uh, teach Torah and learn Torah a tremendous amount of the day. I have one more question about your time in Chicago and Baltimore, and that is the question of identity. At this point, you didn't have any formal rabbinic position. So how do you think about yourself? What was your self-conception at that point? Well, I, I certainly did not consider myself a rav because I was not a rav. I had smicha, but I was not a rav of a shul or anything like that. But I considered myself, you know, hopefully, you know, a, a Ben Torah who regarded his learning and teaching of Torah as the Iker activity of his life. And the law teaching was, uh, was a Parnosa, was a Parnosa that I, I found interesting. And I found it enabled me to learn and it allowed me to support my family. Uh, and it also was a little bit of a tool of outreach. I mean, there are a few people who became from because initially, initially, uh, you know, they were law students of mine and they saw the Yamaka and the Tzitzis and, you know, that attracted them. So at least indirectly, I, uh, there was a little bit of a Kirov component uh, as well. But um, I, I think I, I regarded myself as, as a Balabas who considered uh, Tyra to be the Iker, the Iker thing in his life, which is, you know, perfectly good because in Baltimore, that was a model. You know, there are certain communities where sometimes that's a little difficult. Eretz help, for example. Sometimes in Yerushalayim, it's difficult for a Balabas to have a, a definition that does, basically, he's not in Kolel. In other words, he's defined by a negative. I think in a place like Baltimore, because of the Hashkafa of Nair Yisrael, the, the Balabas that was Kobea Itim Lutaira, you know, had a very esteemed and respected role in the community. And I think that's a good thing. Can you unpack that a little more? What was it about Ne Yisrael that was so conducive to becoming a professional who was also a Ben Torah? Well, obviously, was rooted in Slobodka, was rooted in the idea of Torah is everything. Torah is the most important form. And ideally, a person should make himself in the Ayyavashul Torah as a Rebbe, as a Magad Shir, as a Marvitz Torah, as a Rosh Hashiva. And yet, what's so interesting is that even the many, many Talmudim of Ner Yisrael, who did not go into the full-time Kinuch world, did not remain in the yeshiva world, became doctors, lawyers, accountants, businessmen. One of the most common things that the yeshiva was mashrish in all of his Talmudim was that whatever you do, your Torah, and your Achrayas to Klal Yisrael has to be the fundamental, central point of your life. So in a sense, what the Rosh Hashiva took from Slobodkin, that Torah is the Iker Chiyas, was received by the Talmidim, whether they stayed in the Yeshiva world or whether they didn't. Baruch Hashem, many, many, many Talmidim of Ner Yisrael are in the Yeshiva world, Mechaber Svarim. But even or Rabbanis or whatever it would be, Klei Kaidesh. But even those who are not, you find that they are the Magide Shir of Daf Yomi, 
that they are giving shiurim, that they have karusas, that they learn hours before they go to work and hours after they come back. And not only in their learning, but there are also people who teach. There are people who take akrayas uh, for the day schools, for the mikvahs, for the shuls, for the community kailo. So in a sense, one of the chidushim, I think, that Rav Rudiman pioneered in Er Yisrael, he was not the only one, but certainly was one of the major, major forces, is the idea, as Shlomo HaMelech says in Mishle, in all of your pathways, you come to know God. You know Hashem not only if your vocation happens to be in Avedas HaKadosh, but even if your vocation happens to be in a secular field, it's malach right. Your malacha is an important part of your life, but it's not the ikr. The ikr is your Torah, your mitzvahs, your chesed, your involvement in the needs of Klal Yisrael. And I would also add, at least as an aside, that the Rosh Hashiva put an extreme importance on shalom bias on the relationship of a husband and a wife and the need for a husband to care for his wife and show her that he cared. That too was one of the great, great lessons that he inspired. So as a result, I think that every Talmud of Nehru Israel absorbed in their lifeblood the kashivas of Taira and uh, it becomes manifest in many, many different ways. But once again, there was no sense that you're either in full-time learning or forget about it. Rather, everybody considers the Lima Natera to be the essential aspect of it. And when did you actually join the rabbinate? So what happened was um, I, I was in Baltimore just as law professor from 1983 to 1988. In 1988, I was approached by a show in Silver Spring that had been around for uh, many, many years, but without a rav, because some of the founding Balabatim, some of them are still there in the show to this day, uh, you know, were had smicha, they were Yodea Sefer, they were Lamdonim, and they kind of ran things. But at some point, they decided they needed a rav. And they always said it was very hard for them to get a rav because they wanted a rav who was both knowledgeable in Torah and had a good secular background because so many of the uh, membership in the Woodside Synagogue of Silver Spring themselves were graduates of Harvard Law School or a very, you know, very prominent lawyers. Washington is a very big lawyer town. Uh, and a lot of um, the from people of my show who live in Silver Spring, a suburb of Washington, came there to be government lawyers, government service lawyers. So they weren't rich because they were government lawyers, but they were bright. They were smart. And um, as a result, they, they had difficulty finding a Rav. And they asked me to try out. Now, how did they find me? Once again, it's a bit of a mystery, but I think somebody in the show knew me from Neri Israel, like a younger, one of the younger people uh, was a Neri Israel alumnus. So they had me come uh, for a prabba. They had me come for Shabbos Agadol uh, to speak like four or five times. I remember there was a long, grueling interview about what do I think about Yomad Smart? You know, whatever it is. Yes. It's a show that has you know, diverse points of the spectrum. Uh, but they did, they did hire me. Uh, they did hire me. Uh, they could only offer me a part-time salary, so they actually required that I maintain my law school affiliation with the University of Maryland. But as I say, once I became a Rav, number one, I had to relocate from Baltimore to Silver Spring, even though the University of Maryland Law School was still in Baltimore, so I had to do that commute every day, which you know wasn't so bad, but it was a a commute. Uh, but as I tell people, the way I describe it at that point is that most of my salary comes from law school teaching. Most of my time was devoted to Rabbanus. So, uh, there's no such thing as a part-time Rabbanus. There was only a part-time salary for a full-time Rabbanus. And that became, you know, my primary uh, vocation for more than 22 years, uh, 23 years. Although one year was a sabbatical in Rich Israel, actually. 1999. And uh, Baruch it's a lovely community. Um, you know, obviously we have, we have, every community has its problems and its tensions, but I'm, I'm still in very close contact, even though it's been 13 years, 14 years 
Paul, since I left, I'm still in contact with many, many members of the, of the community. So it's a very, very important part of our lives. Um, this is where we raised. We have only one, one son who lives in Baltimore, but this is where we raised our son, and it was a lovely community to raise children in. It's really special to hear about all of the tremendous Siata Deshmaya that you experienced from Boston to Chicago and Baltimore, and then with the Kehillah and Silver Spring finding you. And that makes this next question a little bit of a funny one, but I think it's interesting to think about. Do you ever think about what might be different if you were a young man growing up today, how that might look? Well, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a little hard, it's a little hard to say. I, I, I think in some ways, and, and it's hard to me because my, my experience is colored by living in Eretz Israel for a lot of years. But I see in, in the yeshiva world today a certain narrowness, a certain exclusion, a certain inability to appreciate the diversity and differences that exist within people. There's more of a push towards conformity, towards a one-size-fit-all, in which you either go with the system or, you, you know, or we simply have no use for you. Maybe I'm exaggerating and maybe I'm being overly negative and I, and I apologize if that's the case. Uh, but I think when I look at the great bracha that Hashem gave me was kind of being in environments that, that were responsive to individuality, that understood that people have different drachim, people have different talents. And as Shlomo Melech says, you have to educate a person according to their their death and not try to remake them. And as a result, um, I think that helped me personally a lot to whatever degree I'm able to help others. Uh, I try to pass that lesson, lesson on or pass that approach on. Uh, today, I think it's a little harder. I'm, I, I'm not sure exactly why. Maybe it's as the world gets more decadent, so we got to go to the other extreme of, you know, circling the wagons. That sometimes happens. But I think there's, there's less tolerance, less openness, less understanding of individual dynamics. Uh, I'll use diversity, although diversity is kind of a trafe word with the Harvard stuff and everything else. Uh, but I think there's less appreciation for diversity. And, and one of the great things of Ner Yisrael as a yeshiva, historically, and this goes back to Rav Ruderman being a Talmud of the altar of Slobodka, was that it emphasized God Adam and it emphasized the individuality of each person. It was not a cookie cutter, one size fit all. And I think, unfortunately, we're seeing less and less of that in the modern world. So it's hard to know how things would have come out. They may not have come out the same way. So it's a brother. When a person is put into a certain time frame, that's also a brother. There's a reason why the Abister put him in that particular time. As I'm listening to you tell your story, I noticed how at almost all of the stops you recall and remember the warmth that you felt, whether it's in Hartford and in Baltimore and Chicago and Silver Spring. And I now understand and appreciate better the warmth that I feel as a distant Talmud listening to your shirim. There's really such a tremendous warmth that comes through even through my earphones while I'm doing other things. And I wanted to ask you if you have any parting thoughts or advice about the place that that warmth should play in our lives as Jews today. To me, you know, sometimes people think think this is, is a kiddish or I'm saying something unusual. But to me, I just don't understand why people instinctively don't see how simple and important th 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 this is. The idea that, you know, people in this modern age are, are so lonely, they feel so lost, they feel so disconnected, and they feel they're being judged, they're being criticized, they're being broken down. And just a single word, a single sentence that I care about you, that I'm much of you. And even in Kiruv, it's very important. Sometimes, you know, the message that's given to a Balchuva or to a potential Balchuva is like, you're a nobody, but we'll make you somebody. That doesn't work. The way you of somebody is not by showing how bad they are. It's by showing them how good they already are. And then they're motivated to become, to become better. So... The idea of building people up is such a yesot in life and in Judaism and in Torah and in Kirib. 
build people up. Don't knock them down. Don't criticize. Don't denigrate. Understand that if people are not living up to the standard that you wish they would live up to, maybe they're not ready for that. But that doesn't mean what they're doing is without value. Uh, the you know, I'm, I'm learning, I happen to be giving shiurim now in the beautiful, magnificent Sefer Torah Devira, which you know, everybody should learn. And Torah uh, is all about this. And he talks about the notion of having kavod for everybody. Everybody has something worthwhile about. And again, unfortunately, in the Torah world sometimes, we're very much into denigration, how bad this is and that is and that is and that is. And I understand the need for that because we need to sometimes clarify what are kosher ideas, what are trafe ideas. So I'm not dismissing the need to condemn many, many things. But it turns into such a personal nastiness and sarcasm and cynicism that ultimately, I think, you yourself get destroyed with those attitudes. You're destroying yourself with that negativity. So I look at, you know, in the, I look at someone like Ref Cook going all the way you know, many, many years ago. As someone who saw, even in secular Zionism, he saw a goodness that was lurking beneath the, the surface appearances. And I think that we should need to cultivate that meat in ourselves. And I think Al-Lamaisa, I think that's what Rabbi Moshe Kodivara was saying in the Torah of Ira. Rabbi Yitzhak Breidowitz, it's been a great honor and really illuminating to hear all of your insights today. Thank you so much for joining us. You should have much, much Hatzalotha and Bracha in everything that you're doing. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Startig. If you're still listening at this point, that means that you've enjoyed. Please take a moment to give us a five-star review, make sure that you're subscribed, and share this episode with a few friends. I want to thank our production team, Yoni Schwartz, Yitzhak Schwibben, and Yossi Book. Until next week, keep on steiging, Hebra. Okay.